You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It can be a great leveler, an opportunity to literally and figuratively put the candidates within touching distance of people. We talk about Harry S. Truman when we talk about whistle stop or train campaigning. You know, the first thing you're going to gravitate to in history is Harry S. Truman. And he did it well, but the person that probably did it the most and certainly the first to use it in a massive way is William Jennings Bryan in 1896 when he was running for president against William McKinley, who was specifically not going around campaigning around the country. He, in 1896... He campaigned by train in 27 states, made hundreds and hundreds of speeches, and is estimated to have talked to 5 million people. That's Edward Segal, the author of Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains, and the Reporters Who Covered Them. And we're going to talk to him today. Adjusted for growth and inflation, whatever, today, it would be tens of millions of people. The platform that William Jennings Bryan had was silver money versus gold money. And specifically, it was the 16 to 1 ratio that the U.S. should start minting silver coins at a 16 to 1 ratio to gold. It's an inflationary concept. We want to get more money out there, have more credit. It comes out of coins, financial, other pamphleteers and ideas that are kind of have to be written down and explained. So if you're at a whistle stop, in some town and there's a group of people gathered around and the candidate Brian gets out of the back of the train, you've got to find some easy way to illustrate what this really means. And so William Jennings Bryan would uh, ask people to raise their hands if they had silver or if they had gold in their pockets. And people would do that. And they'd usually raise their hand for both. And his point would be, see, silver is a totally acceptable form of currency. Well, a problem developed. Pickpockets would be on to his speech as he made it in different towns and would start to follow the train, sometimes take the train, and relieve people of their silver or gold, since candidate Bryant had carefully identified who they were in the crowd. What they didn't count on was that the candidate himself was pretty good at spotting them. Nine pickpockets trailed William Jennings Bryan in his trip through Kansas and into Nebraska yesterday. Two of them left the train near Barnston last night, and seven of them left the train in the south end of the Lincoln Yards. The pickpockets were detected in their work at Barnston, Nebraska, by Mr. Bryan himself while he was addressing the crowd from the rear platform of the car. Suddenly stopping in his speech, Mr. Bryan pointed to a man in the crowd and said in a quick, sharp tone, 
That man near you is picking your pocket. The man addressed turned around and quickly saw the pickpocket in his act. Sheriff Waddington of Gage County was present and in a twinkling had the man in custody. Brian would later say, The way to catch them in a crowd like this is to spot them by watching the men who get way into the middle of the crowd at every station and have to break through to board. When the train starts, why would they want to be in the middle? One newspaper said, At one depot rally, the next president was showing a knowledge that would do credit to an inspector of detectives. And with that, we'll get right into our interview with the author of this book, Edward Segal. I really encourage you, uh, Whistle Stop Politics, check it out, especially as we're heading into an election year. Thanks for coming on the program, Edward. Good to be with you today, Bruce. Uh, We think of train campaigning, some of us do, as archaic. If anybody knows of it, it's Harry Truman. It appears um, that it's not so archaic, and even Biden did one in 2020. What other recent campaigns can you think of that are still using trains? Well, that's a great question. That's, In fact, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, to help educate or, in some cases, uh, remind people uh, about the important history of campaign trains and how many candidates have have uh, campaigned from the back of uh, their trains. Uh, even just since uh, 2020, there have been at least 19 candidates who have done whistle-stop campaign trains. You're right, Joe Biden did it in 2020, uh, just uh, three, a few years ago. A uh, candidate in Vermont, Peter Welch, campaigning for U.S. Senate, he did it in 2022. Before that, Barack Obama, John Kerry, John Edwards. It's a long list of candidates who have campaigned by train recently, and I have my finger crossed that at least one candidate will do a campaign train tour this year. And does it tend to be like, um, does it tend to be if someone is, uh, say, like in Harry Truman style, they're they're a little behind in the polls, and then this is the tactic they utilize? Well, it actually helps candidates whether they're leading the polls or Mm -hmm. behind. It's no guarantee, however, that if you campaign by train, you're going to win, but it can be a tipping point. And like any other campaign tool or tactic, It depends how you use it. It depends what you say on the back of the train. It depends how you respond to hecklers. It depends on a lot of things, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to win. But in many cases, such as Harry Truman, he probably would have lost if he did not do his campaign train tour. And it wasn't one. It was actually several trips before the elections in 1948. Um, What can... The two 2024 candidates, or the several 2024 candidates, learn from this kind of a whistle-stop politics of the past? Well, I think there are a lot of important lessons to learn. One is to keep it short. Most candidates campaigning from the back of the trains, they would speak for only 5 or 10 or maybe 15 minutes at the most. So that was an important lesson for today's candidates. And whistle-stopping candidates had to speak briefly because they often had a very rigorous, demanding schedule of train trips, and they did not want to be late for the next train tour. The other important lessons that candidates can learn today from past whistle-stopping candidates is to go to where the people are. That was another reason why candidates campaigned by train. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of small, large, medium train stations and depots across the country 
where the candidates would arrange their schedules and visit. But sometimes the conductor or the engineer or the campaign staff would see dozens or hundreds of people just standing by the trackside in the middle of nowhere because they heard the train was coming by. And often the candidate or their staff or the conductor would simply have the train stop and do an impromptu speech from the back of the train. They did not want to disappoint these people who came out to listen and hear the candidate. The other important lesson to learn from past whistle-stopping candidates is to use props, use visuals, not just to uh, tell your story, but use visuals to help uh, show and show your story. Dwight Eisenhower, when he was running for president in 1952, he did a great job of that. He would take a three-foot length of wood that had been notched in two places. Mm. He would hold it up and say, this was the dollar of the value years ago when FDR became president. Then he would break off one of the pieces of the wood. Now, it was only two feet long. And he said, this is the value of the dollar when FDR died in 1945. And he would break off another piece. He'd only have a 12-inch length of wood. And he said, this is the dollar after Truman left the White House. So this was a very effective way to use a visual, to use a prop, and he used that several times during his campaign train tour in 1952. Love it. That's great. Since we uh, had arranged the the, the interview, um, I learned that my wife ha- had pulled out uh, her of um, there is Theodore Roosevelt in Abilene, Texas, um, now a decent sized city, always a sort of important cattle city, but not Abilene, Kansas, though, actually Abilene, Texas. There he is. I mean, they were able to get a photograph of Theodore Roosevelt in the flesh. And it's uh, it, it really seems like these were a fascinating opportunity for people to be able to see people in government they're only reading about in the newspapers. Of images. In fact, I have an image oh, on my book of Theodore Roosevelt campaigning from the back of the train in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1902. And thousands of people are gathered to listen and and hear him speak. So, yes, uh, it has been what I called over the years political eye candy, that when people find out that a train is coming by or stopping in their town or the community, they will often flock to see the candidate. And it was a great way not just to get people to come out, but to get news organizations to come out and to make the evening news. And these days, if a candidate campaigned by train, they'd probably even get more news coverage, more publicity than ever before. Why? Because of social media. And hundreds or thousands of people would bring their phones, take pictures, take videos, post it on Snapchat, or YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever. So the news and photos and the experience of seeing a campaign candidate uh, would be much wider today than ever before. And so it, it it plays into something that I've talked about in the past, but it was more speculation on my part, particularly about uh, William Jennings Bryan. And, you know, I had told listeners that, you know, if you lived in the Midwest in the 1896 election and you wanted to see William Jennings Bryan, you probably could have. Um, you'd have to travel perhaps uh, to one train station or another, but he made so many appearances. Um, and it seems to me that back in those days, a train campaign could reaching with when you figure all those stops, 
all of those people who are gathered and the amount of of uh, trips that they're making um that they could be over the course of a campaign reaching millions of people like almost as much as one of today's political ads you're exactly right and i write about william Jennings Bryan in my book he in 1896 he campaigned by train in 27 states made hundreds and hundreds of speeches and is estimated to have talked to 5 million people. If you project to what 5 million people then adjusted for growth and inflation, whatever, today, it would be tens of millions of people that he would have spoken to or the equivalent today. So, yes. And interestingly, most people then, of course, they had never seen a political candidate. Uh, Photography, uh, they might have seen a picture, but they certainly would not have heard the candidate. So this was a great opportunity to see and hear someone they had heard about. And candidates would make a tremendous impression on the people who came out to see them. Whistle-stopping candidates, they would become part of the local history of the town or the community. Stories, recollections, and reminiscences of seeing a candidate would be passed down from among family members and generation to generation. And sometimes people would find in their closet, as you told me recently, uh, an image of someone who had seen a candidate from the back of the train. You talked about, like, this is a good way to reach not only people, but reach journalists. Uh, It also seems that particularly, say, Truman, 1948, a great way to reach local politicians who may not, if a letter came from the White House, would you please support President Harry Truman? And and they may take their time with that if it's a telegraph from the White House. But all of a sudden, Truman's coming through your town and all these people are going to be there. Now, Senator Smith is going to show up and things like that. So it seemed to be a way of um, kind of cajoling and and associating a president with uh, local politicians as well. Yeah, the trains were often a great way to connect with and schmooze and lobby local officials along the route of the train. Many times, the train would stop several stations before a major depot, and the politicians or other local VIPs or celebrities, they would board the train so that when the train pulled into another station, they were already on board, and a candidate would introduce them, or sometimes a local politician would would would, would introduce the whistle-stopping politicians. And sometimes communities were really upset that a campaign train did not stop in their town or community. That happened in Temple, Texas, when they heard that Teddy Roosevelt, his train was coming through because he was on his way for a reunion of uh, the Rough Riders uh, elsewhere in the state. And the town uh, officials were so upset that he was not going to to stop, they actually passed a law that required candidates who were coming, whose train was coming by, they were required to stop for ten minutes. And then they thought, well, okay, we'll compromise. They don't have to stop for five minutes. And sure enough, Teddy Roosevelt heard about it and he stopped. Years later, when Harry Truman was going by the same area, his train stopped and he made a point of saying. I love you people. I was going to talk to you anyway. You don't need a law to make me talk to you. So he was <laughs> he was aware of that local town ordinance. Uh, we talk a lot about Truman in, in the context of trains, and we should. Um, and, it, and it seems that uh, 
that's been well examined. Do you think there's a, a election, a general or a primary besides Harry Truman, where that train campaign made a difference? Definitely. In fact, I had the opportunity to interview by letter uh, Senator George McGovern, who was running for president, of course, in 1972. He was a Democratic Party nominee. And he told me in a letter that without his campaign train tour in California and Nebraska for the primaries, he would not have won those two state primaries. So he credited his campaign train to helping, to, again, as a tipping point, to help him win those two state primaries. Interesting. It's it's not one that we associate that with with uh, normally with a uh, with a train uh, campaign. That's fascinating. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Truman, Harry Truman had an opponent, which is always easy to forget. Sometimes people do. Uh, folks on my show, maybe a little less than the average, but it was uh, Thomas Dewey. And Thomas Dewey was on a train as well. And that's not the part of the 1948 story you often hear about. Do you um, could you say anything about how, um, Thomas Dewey's train, how it was different from the Magellan and what he did differently, wrong, right, et cetera? Well, there's some really important differences between Truman's campaign train and Thomas Dewey's. Uh, for Truman, uh, the text of his speeches were often only available an hour or so for reporters. And this this really irritated the reporters because that did not give them enough time to write their stories or to have their articles show up uh, in newspapers on the East Coast. Uh, the journalists were also not happy that there was not even a loudspeaker in the press car, which means they would have to jump off of the car, run to the back of the train, listen to Truman, and then run back to the press car before the train took out, took off without them in order to write their stories. They also had issues with basic stuff like hygiene and laundry. And it was really up to the reporters uh, to uh, take care of their own laundry. And that was an irritation to journalists. Dewey's train, on the other hand, was much better organized. They said they were quite impressed 
by the smooth professionalism of Dewey's uh, operation. Uh, the texts for speeches were usually available at least a day before Dewey gave them, so that gave reporters plenty of time to prepare their stories. The uh, press car uh, had uh, two dining cars, two dining areas, and they were equipped with loudspeakers. Uh, that was a, a big difference uh, with the Truman campaign. So that enabled the reporters to hear, hear Dewey's back platform comments um, without running out to the back of the train. And housekeeping, again, uh, the living conditions on the train, they seem to be, have been much better with Dewey than Truman. And no housekeeping detail was overlooked down to the nitty-gritty issues of um, laundry. Uh, so hygiene and laundry, these basics that we take for granted today, um, these were important major issues for the reporters who covered both of those train trips. It might be interesting to drill down a bit on that press car because I think it's it, it's probably what it makes it a little unique. It might be interesting to listeners is that you know so so it you know there would be on these trains a press car maybe usually just one car um, or more uh, but maybe one car and so the reporters you know Scripps Howard UPI all of these guys would be together on this, all the different reporters would be together on this one car. And I guess they would need a, um, in addition, a place to sleep because they're not getting off that car for some time. Um, a, uh, you know, to be fed, of course. And uh, if they're on the Truman train, they probably need a place to wash their socks. If it's the Dewey train, then their laundry's getting taken care of at least. They'd also have some kind of like... Um, electronic equipment or telephonic equipment in order to to feed stories in and typewriters and the like? Well, it really depended on the year of the campaign mm -hmm. train. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, on his train trip from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C., uh, for his inauguration, he actually had a telegraph machine on board for his use and the use of his staff. And that was an important development over time that as new technology developed and was perfected, you'd often see it show up on a campaign train. Woodrow Wilson had a typewriter, which was really cutting edge at the time, a typewriter on board, and the reporters were jealous that that uh, Woodrow Wilson had a typewriter, and, and they didn't. Over time, as new technology was introduced and perfected, it would show up on the campaign trains, whether it was uh, telephones, uh, teletype, uh, it depended on the uh, the year and the time. When Ronald Reagan did his campaign trip in Ohio in 1984, the technology was so advanced that he actually had a conversation with uh, the space crew and the Challenger that was circling hundreds of miles um, overhead. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when he had a campaign trip in 1976, he had a copying machine on board and Jody Powell was the press secretary. He told me later that he was not happy that they had that copy machine on the train. Why? Because the day the train started its tour was the day that a very controversial interview in Playboy with Carter was published, oh. where he admitted that he lusted, quote unquote, women in his heart. And reporters demanded copies of the story. And uh, they, that they put the the copying machine to good use. Uh, the campaign staff had thought they would be using the copying machine to uh, make copies uh, duplicate. 
uh, news releases, text stories. But uh, Jody Powell told me later he kind of regretted he had that <laughs> equipment on the board for that trip. Yeah, that was a that was a uh, that was a disaster for the camp. I mean, he probably dropped more in the polls from that than than anything. It made made some of it back up. I uh, did did. Uh, did uh, Jody Powell or others in the uh, uh, talking about the '76 campaign talk? Did they attribute that train trip to any particular significance? I mean, that was a really close race. It was a close race. It uh, certainly uh, was uh, again probably a contributing factor, but I can't go back and say this was the the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Again, it campaigning by the train is fine. But the candidates and the staff, they have to know how to use it effectively, what they say. And sometimes what a candidate would say on the back of the train um, would come back and haunt them. And Thomas Dewey, 1948, he was speaking. And while he was speaking, his train pulled out uh, unexpectedly while he was talking to the crowd. He was really upset. And a slip of the tongue that generated a lot of news coverage was, who's that idiot engineer? He should be shot at dawn. <laughs> that was picked up by the press. It was actually picked up uh, and used to great effect by Harry Truman, who uh, who used it as a rallying cry to solicit uh, support from railroad workers. So it can be work campaigning by train can work for you or against you. It just depends how you use it. Um, what's a train campaign story that you found that you like or is the most unusual? I found a series of anecdotes that I write about in the book, and I was surprised by the number of candidates who were actually allowed themselves to be impersonated by others on the campaign train tour. Uh, going back to uh, William Jennings Bryan's in 1896, uh-huh. Eugene Debs in 1908, Harry Truman when he was running for vice president under FDR in 1944. FDR in 1936, Dwight Eisenhower in 1952. They would actually allow or sometimes encourage members of their family, their campaign staff, or in a couple of instances, reporters to impersonate them from the back of the trains. Why? Because it, it could be so grueling for these campaign train tours, the candidates needed a rest, and they thought uh, one way to get some shut-eye and rest up was to have others impersonate them. Sometimes the candidates would act, the the impersonators would say something that the people thought they were hearing the president or uh, the candidate for president, uh, or they would just uh, impersonate them from the back of the train, not speak, but people would have the definite impression that they just saw the president or presidential candidate when in fact they had seen a personator and no one was the wiser. (laughs) <laughs> oh that's great oh, that's great uh, well we've been talking to Edward Segal uh, his book is Whistle Stop Politics Campaign Trains and the Reporters Who Covered Them I mean besides uh, what we talked about today anything else that you think is really significant for listeners to know about um, trains and politics it's important to realize how complicated it could be to mount a campaign train You don't get up on a Tuesday morning and say, I know, I'm going to campaign by train across the country. (laughs) It would take a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of organization to make it work. And many of the candidates would plan these trips 
uh, weeks or sometimes months in advance to map the the best possible route across the country to uh, inform the reporters and get them to commit to riding on the train. Sometimes the candidates would use the trains as fundraising vehicles, uh, literally and figuratively, to help raise campaign cash, and they would invite major donors or would-be donors to campaign on the train with them. So it it was a very time-intensive. It could be very effective, but that's one of the challenges today of a candidate using the train. They would have to be very careful about the timing, location, work out with the railroad companies to make sure the tracks were clear. And, of course, a presidential nominee would be very concerned today about security. Presidential candidates in recent past, uh, they have often had uh, helicopters uh, hovering overhead for security. Sometimes there would be not one, not two, but three trains as part of the configuration. Mm -hmm. They would often have a pilot train who would travel the tracks ahead of the main train to make sure there was no booby traps, explosives, or anything on the train that on the tracks might that might cause a derailment. Then there was a main train, and then sometimes there was a third train on back of the main train that would carry additional people or supplies. So it could be quite a moving experience, but also quite an ex, ex, quite an expensive, time-consuming um, operation, and had to be planned very well or else things could happen and the opportunity to generate news coverage could backfire and result in negative press coverage instead of positive. Do you think that there's something about a train that a train is a form of transportation that, you know, in essence, we'll all take together. I buy a ticket. Someone else is free to buy a ticket. um, And we're all riding in a common car. It's not as common today as it as it used to be, I, I, I'm one that still takes Amtrak once in a while, but, um, you know, it's it's not as common, a little more in the Northeast. But it's this kind of like common platform. And then also when people are greeting the president, the presidential candidate must sort of, in these whistle stops, get down pretty close to the level of where people are to be heard. And they, they obviously could take a bus or take planes around and, and be at rallies, but there there seems something humbling about a train. It can be a great leveler and an opportunity to literally and figuratively put the candidates within touching distance of people. And depending upon security arrangements, presidential candidates would shake hands from the back of the platform with the approval of the Secret Service and other personnel they might actually get off the train and circulate in the crowd. And that was incredibly rare. You never see that today, even with a stadium rally or hotel ballroom or mm-hmm. school auditorium. The candidates are, are, are separated, a firewall between them and the people. Uh, I remember seeing candidates over time when I was on the campaign trail, and the security would be very tight where they were separated by 15, 20, or even 100 feet, depending upon the venue, as opposed to campaign trains where the candidates were liter- could literally be within inches of the people that they were talking to. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds, it sounds uh, that way. Well, this has been great. The, the book, 
for my listeners is Whistle Stop Politics, Edward Segal, Campaign Trains, and the reporters who covered them. Edward, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the program. Thanks, Bruce. I enjoyed the conversation. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.